We held the greatest title in the whole world, babe. You lost that fight, Rock, for all the wrong reasons. You lost your edge. Now, when we fought, you had that eye of the tiger, man, the edge. And now you've got to get it back. And the way to get it back is to go back to the beginning. You know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe we could win it back together. and welcome to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman. I am Michael Bradley, your host on this journey through the formative years of the Man of Steel. This is episode 15 for the show, and this time out we will be looking at the third storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. Also, later in the episode, I will have the first portion of a two-part spotlight on Superman's co-creator, artist Joe Schuster. Before I get into that, I've got a couple emails to go through. The first is another letter from Steve Rogers. Steve sent this uh, the day, actually, actually the day that I posted episode 13. Uh, he had posted a link in reply to the Facebook post, and I admit that I really didn't understand the link at the time, but thankfully his email cleared it up. The subject line of Steve's email is from the I'm probably way overthinking this department, and the email reads, Hey Michael, after having a little fun putting a picture of Lou Gehrig with the 1938 season World's Fair uniform on the Facebook page, it got me thinking. Son of German immigrants, quite aloof and unassuming off the field, while not as gregarious as Babe Ruth, Gehrig probably made enough personal appearances that his persona could have been known at the time, and yet one of the strongest, most ferocious hitters in the game. Not a speed demon, but as durable as they came. Only a rare disease finally took him out of the lineup. Same chiseled features of a certain pulp comic superhero, but to be fair, that look isn't uncommon by any stretch. Of course, we are talking about two guys who worked primarily in Cleveland and Toronto, and I have no knowledge of Siegel and Schuster's feelings on sports, and enough has been made of the other source material for Clark's slash Superman's look. But still, Garrick's exploits were quite the rage in the day. It's not like Garrick was, well, probably a good comparison today would be a utility infielder, best known by only rabid fans of the sport. Seems like something could be there in terms of, did this legendary athlete inspire a legendary fictional character? Like I said, I'm probably overthinking, but just thought I'd share something that came to mind. And thank you, Steve, for the email. I don't know either if Siegel or Schuster were, you know, baseball fans. Um, I know neither were very interested in playing sports themselves, but that doesn't necessarily mean they weren't fans of watching the, the baseball. Uh, but Gehrig certainly was one of the premier players of the game, especially in that time frame of Superman's creation from 1934 to 19, 1938. So you wouldn't have had to have been a huge baseball fan to know that he was one of the game's top players. I've never heard anything about Siegel or Schuster being inspired by Gehrig. Most of their inspirations came from you know, fictional worlds from comic strips and uh, movie serials. But you're right, the similarities are pretty interesting. The next email is from my friend John Wilson. John is the host of Golden Age Superman, another podcast that looks at Superman's earliest comic book stories. John also co-hosts a couple other podcasts, including Amazing Spider-Man Classics and Teenage Wasteland and Ultimate Spider-Man Podcast. I've gotten to know John through Facebook and email. Uh, he's a real good guy, and he puts together three great shows, so I was happy to get an email from him about this show. But uh, John wrote, Michael, hey there, just wanted to write an actual real-life email letting you know how much that I'm enjoying the show. I've been impressed at the variety of features you've developed, with the fifth-week episodes being the latest. Breaking up the standard pattern with the special highlight episodes will be an extra treat to look forward to each quarter. I've also enjoyed the look back at Jerry Siegel's life. In fact, if you happen to know when Siegel went off to World War II and when he returned home, I've had a hard time finding that information. 
Also, while I at first didn't understand why you would want to slow down with the multiple Superman stories and just do one each week, I'm definitely getting it now. Your coverage of the two origin stories in the newspapers was great, and I always look forward to your episodes every week. Thanks for helping carry the fire of Golden Age Superman and now Golden Age Batman. John M. Wilson Thank you very much, John. I really appreciate the compliments and the kind words about the show. It really means a lot. Um, you know, when you do a podcast, it's always great to hear feedback that listeners enjoy the show. But once in a while, you'll get an email like this from a fellow podcaster whose shows you also enjoy. And that's just that's just really great. Um, it's a fair amount of work to do a podcast, and I think sometimes listeners don't always realize just how much work will go into it. And that's not a complaint or a slight to, to listeners. I mean, I certainly didn't realize it either before I started doing this show. That's just how it is. When you're not doing something yourself, you don't always realize the, the work and effort that goes into it. And it's the same whether you're writing or, or drawing or podcasting or, you know, whatever, whatever it is you do. It's When you're not doing it yourself, you don't always realize the, the effort that it takes. But I appreciated hearing from someone like John who's been, you know, who's been in the trenches for a while and knows what goes into it. So thank you again, John, for writing in. I'm glad that you like the different features, and I really appreciate the feedback and knowing that people are enjoying the show. And yeah, I'm going uh, issue by issue or story by story rather than by the month, and I know that's a little different from what other podcasts do, but like I think I said in the first episode, I really wanted to go slower and be able to explore through things a bit more. So I decided to approach things from a new direction and just see how it came together. You know, on one hand, it's it's kind of painful because there are so many stories that I'm just dying to get to, and it's going to be even longer going, you know, at the slower pace. But the bright side is I'm really able to dig into stories and take my time on things that otherwise just might get glossed over or you know, get the short end of the stick. So, and I'm enjoying doing that, and hopefully you and the other listeners are as well. As for Siegel's World War II enlistment dates, I don't have actual dates on hand. Um, as I said in the spotlight, I know he was sworn in during Cleveland's Fourth of July festival in 1943, and, and I'm not sure if that was like the official swearing in or just a ceremonial thing for show, but I do know it was 1943 when he began his service and then he served until his honorable discharge in 1946. I'm going to keep researching his life and, and Joe Schuster's as well, and if I come across the specific dates, I will be sure to let you know, and uh, I'll make a mention of on the podcast as well. Folks, be sure to check out all of John's shows, but especially his Superman podcast. The URL of that is goldenagesuperman.libsyn.com. Like I mentioned, John is taking a month of stories at a time, so he's a little farther ahead than where I am. From what I've heard, it seems our takes on the stories are different enough that I've heard from a few people that you're able to listen to both shows and not feel like things are repeated. So be sure to check out that and all his other shows. The Golden Age Superman is on iTunes and the Superman Podcast Network, or you can visit greatcrypton.com and click the link to his site. Or if you want to go there directly, once more, that URL is goldenagesuperman.lipsyn.com. You are cordially invited to attend a podcast that observes the unfolding events of history. Come with me and observe the birth and growth of a legend. From the pages of a ten-cent pulp comic book, to the newspapers, radio program adventures, theatrical films, and more. Witness the dawn of the superhero. Superman. Available on iTunes and at goldenagesuperman.libson.com. Every legend has a beginning.
Okay, so, the third storyline from the Superman Daily Newspaper Strip. It ran in strips 31 through 54, and those strips were published from February 20th until March 18th, 1939. So that puts it starting about two weeks before and ending about a week and a half after the likely publication of Action Comics number 11 that we looked at last episode. The story has been titled The Comeback of Larry Trent and was written by Jerry Siegel with pencils by Joe Schuster and inks by Paul Cassidy. And in a rare occurrence, we can know for sure that Cassidy did inks on this story. And there's a specific reason for that, which I will point out when we get to it in the story. As our story kicks off, we find Superman doing something that we really haven't seen him doing too much at this point. He's out on patrol. We've seen him helping people by the truckload, but it's always been by basically stumbling into a situation, usually via his identity of Clark Kent. But here we see him taking a more proactive approach rather than a reactive one. And I like the wording, too, because the narration reads, One night, while out searching for someone in need of assistance. I like that because it paints Superman as a superhero rather than a crime fighter. Not that the two are mutually exclusive, but it fits in line with the origin story from Action Comics number 1 where it's said that he devoted his existence to helping those in need. And I just love that so much. Having a hero that lifts us up rather than stopping those who would keep us down. And I really think that comics as a whole would benefit from writing characters that do that because it's easy to get focused on how, you know, how can good guy X stop bad guy Y's evil machinations rather than what can good guy X do to help folks with his or her abilities. And coincidentally, we're going to see more of that later in this story. But our story begins at night with Superman on patrol, and adding further to the complex and varied landscape around the city that Superman calls home, Superman passes by a large bay of water. As he's doing so, he spots a figure falling from a bridge. With a mighty leap, Superman is able to catch the man and is able to position himself so that he receives the brunt of the impact when they hit the water. He pulls the man to safety on dry land and then thinks to himself that the man looks familiar. When the man revives, he explains what happened, that he had saved him from falling and drowning, and goes on to tell the guy that he looks familiar and asks his name. But the guy goes crazy, jerking away from Superman, telling him that he was trying to commit suicide. Superman is taken aback that the guy he saved would act so belligerent towards him, but the guy is still enraged and takes a swing at Superman. Seeing the veracity of the guy's punch, it finally dawns on Superman who the man is. He's Larry Trent, former heavyweight boxing champion of the world. Once the guy calms down, Superman asks what would drive the guy to try and kill himself, and Trent replies that he's lost all faith in himself and society. Also, he was pretty upset over the fact that Bella chose Edward. Actually, that last part's not true, but I'm sure it would have been, you know, had Twilight been around then, because Larry seems like he'd be the Team Jacob kind of guy. Anyway, we then get a flashback to what brought Larry to the depths of his misery. And this is another first in Siegel's Superman, because until now, all the stories have been pretty much happening, quote-unquote, in real time. Even the origin storyline in the dailies and the origin we saw in Action Comics number 1 were pretty much told chronologically, not as if Superman or another character was looking back on them. But Larry tells Superman his story. Apparently, his manager was working with some gangsters running a gambling racket. The thugs promised Larry's manager a cut of the profits if Larry lost the title match. So before the fight, his manager drugged his drink, causing him to lose the fight and the title. Everything was downhill from there, and now Larry is dragging the gutters, fighting wherever he can fight for $5 a night. Superman asks Trent if he were to restore his title for him, if that would help him get back on his feet. Trent says it would, but being clearly unaware of who Superman is, asks how he could possibly do that. Anybody want to take a guess? Well, if you thought back to Superman's plan in Action Comics number 4, you'd be spot on. Superman suggests that he disguise himself as Trent and fight his way to be heavyweight champion. Wait, 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 wait! Don't turn the podcast off. This is a much better story than that Action Comics number four, I promise, okay? Slowly back away from the stop button. Slowly. Slowly. Okay, good. Dodged a, dodged a close one there. So, Trent calls him a loon 
and says he'd be knocked out cold in the first fight. But Superman suggests that he could work out and build up his strength. In fact, he says he's going to start right now, and proceeds to uproot a giant tree with his bare hands and lift it above his head. Trent is shocked at the display of strength and says he's a shoe-in for heavyweight champion of the world, if not the universe. So, Trent agrees to go along with Superman's ruse, which is probably a good thing, because had he declined, Superman probably just would have abducted him and held him against his will until he won the title back anyway. So Superman grabs Trent, tells him not to be scared, and leaps through town, finally landing on the windowsill of an apartment that the narration tells us Superman keeps rented for emergencies. And maybe this explains my problem with the story from Action Comics number 11 uh, that we looked at last episode, which found Superman seemingly pulling a fake identity and a furnished office out of nowhere. On the other hand, it doesn't explain how he could afford to maintain two apartments, an office, and all that, or how he went about putting together the fake identity, or why it's never mentioned again. At least I don't think it's ever mentioned again, but I guess we'll see. Anyway, Superman takes Trent to the apartment, and once inside, Superman begins changing clothes, and asks Trent where the next fight was to be. Once Superman is dressed, in the exact same clothes Trent is wearing, and it's lucky he had those in the spare apartment he uses only for emergencies, he asks Trent to tell him about people he knows. Once again, showing he's got the mad skills, he sits down and begins applying makeup and shortly emerges as Trent's near-identical twin. Startled at Superman's new appearance, Trent exclaims, Good gosh, you're me! And Superman replies, Wrong. You're not looking at Larry Trent, ex-champ, but at Larry Trent, the coming champion of the world. And if that bit of dialogue sounds familiar, it's because it's pretty much the same thing he said to Football Zero Tommy Burke in Action Comics number 4 right before drugging him and taking him hostage. Thankfully, Superman's taking a nicer tack here, so in the guise of Larry Trent, Superman heads to the Crystal Club, the scene of that night's fight. Charlie Bennett, the boss, reads the riot act to Superman and the other fighters, telling him he wants action, see? And plenty of laughs. He then announces to the crowds, a rather well-dressed crowd, I might add, the, uh, the Crystal Club seems rather highbrow for boxing, but anyway, he announces to the crowd the night's main event. Twelve men, fighting it out in one ring. The crowd is anxious for the bloodletting to begin, so Bennett rings the bell to start the fight. As the bell rings, Superman lets loose, clocking all eleven of his competitors, knocking out every single last one of them in the space of one second, much to the amazement of the announcer and the gathered crowd. He stands akimbo in the middle of the ring, asking if there's any other challengers, and Bennett enters the ring, raising his arm and declaring Superman the winner. After Superman cleans up, with an exclamation of, Jumpin' Jitterbugs, which, to be honest, is good, but not quite as good as Jumpin' Catfish, Bennett tells him that he should see a man named Jock Kane. Kane is a fight promoter, and Bennett says he can make Trent, a.k.a. Superman, a star again. Later, back at the apartment, Superman and Trent do a bit of sparring, and Superman tells Trent about the fight and the recommendation. Trent tells Superman that ever since losing the title, he's not been Kane's favorite person, but Superman says that he has a feeling Kane is going to have a change in tune very soon, right before popping Trent with an uppercut to the jaw and ribbing him for leaving himself open. The next day, again disguised as Trent, Superman pays a visit to Kane and tells him Bennett sent him. But Kane blows him off, calling him a broken-down bum of a has-been, and telling him to get out. But before Superman can leave, Kane's crony, Slugger Barnes, tells Kane to stall while he plays the old hot-foot prank. You know, the prank where someone tries to light a victim's shoes on fire? Because second- and third-degree burns are funny, I guess? Anyway, Slugger kneels down behind Superman, somehow without being noticed by the guy with super senses, and starts to give Superman the old hot foot. Unfortunately for Slugger, he ends up burning his fingers and cries out in pain. This causes Superman to realize what he was doing, or trying to do, and bust him in the jaw for his troubles. The punch knocks Slugger out cold, and this shocks Kane because apparently Slugger is one of the top fighters in boxing. Superman quips that for a tough guy he's got a pretty soft chin. When Slugger revives, he asks what sledgehammer hit him, but Kane tells him that it wasn't a sledgehammer, 
Trent did it with his fist. He then turns to Superman and begins screaming for him to get out before he calls the cops. And you'd think he would have done that a little earlier instead of waiting for Slugger to wake up, but anyway. Slugger stops him and says that if he can hit like that, why not put him in the ring again? And Kane relents rather easily and tells Superman slash Trent to get ready for his big comeback. After Superman leaves, Kane asks Slugger why he wanted to give him a break, because that type of suggestion was unusual coming from him. Slugger replies that he wants to fight Trent and give him the worst beating of his life as payback for the sock in the jaw. Insert ominous music here. Later, as Superman gets back to the apartment, Trent asks how things went. Superman tells him about the match with Slugger, then asks if he's ready for his workout. And Trent... Trent is still wearing the exact same clothes he was when Superman saved him from drowning. Which is a bit odd, because it's been several days, and you'd think Superman would have more than one set of clothes here at this spare apartment. But maybe he just buys in bulk. Anyway... Trent gets all sad sack and mopey and says it's no use because he'll never get back in fighting shape. So Superman says he just needs a little encouragement and tosses a glass of water in Trent's face, goading him into a fight. And I like that Superman is trying to help Trent improve himself rather than just doing all the work for him. Although it might have been better for Superman to forego the impersonation entirely and, you know, just work with Trent to get him back into shape and than have him do the fighting himself. But then we wouldn't have a story, I guess. So, later that evening, Trent and Superman, dressed in exactly the same clothes, at which point they should be glad no one saw them and asks where Trent's brother came from, but <laughs> Trent and Superman head to the arena for the big fight. Superman goes to the locker room while Trent goes to the stands to watch, well, himself fight against Slugger. Superman gets ready for the fight and engages in a bit of trash talk with Slugger. Then both men enter the ring. The bell rings and Slugger comes out swinging with a punch to Superman's jaw as payback for earlier. But the punch to Superman's invulnerable jaw just sends Slugger reeling in pain and only aggravates him farther. Slugger takes swing after swing but isn't able to land many blows, and when he does, only manages to hurt himself. Because, you know, Man of Steel and all that. Meanwhile, in the audience, Trent cheers loudly for himself, while the rest of the audience seems oddly passive. Back in the ring, Superman talks trash while Slugger wears himself out, flailing and wailing with a frantic series of swings that aren't connecting, until he finally does connect with his own head, knocking himself out with a wild punch. The ref makes the ten count, and Superman, or Trent anyway, is declared the winner, much to the surprise of the crowd. A chorus of boos erupts from the crowd as Slugger is carried out of the ring and he is berated by an unknown man. The press gather around Superman, asking if he's going to make another try at the title, and Superman replies that he's not going to try, he's simply going to win it. As Superman gets to the locker room, the unknown man that was berating Slugger earlier calls out to Superman, thinking he's Trent. But Superman, of course, doesn't recognize him. It turns out the man is Tom Croy, Trent's former manager. He goes on to say that he doesn't blame him for snubbing his old manager, but that they had a good thing before as he was able to get Trent to the championship and claims he can do it again. And I guess Troy is unaware that Trent knows he lost the title because of his manager's shenanigans. You'd think that would have come up at some point, like, you know, when he lost the title. Maybe Trent couldn't prove it, but you'd think he would have at least confronted Troy about it. Then again, maybe Croy just thinks Trent is a moron. Anyway, Superman agrees to work with Croy again, and Croy assures him that he won't regret it. But Croy walks away chuckling under his breath. As it turns out, Croy is still in league with the gangsters, and they plan to pull the exact same stunt they did last time, and that is to build Trent up to championship status, then drug him on the night of the big fight, and clean up at the betting pool. Though, as Croy is talking all this over with the gangster, Superman, now back in costume, has overheard their plan using his super hearing from atop a nearby building. So again we have stalker Superman eavesdropping on private conversations, but at least here he's got a good reason since he knew Croy was a shyster. It's all about the baby steps, people. Baby steps. So later, back at the Daily Star, 
Clark submits a story about Trent's victory, but also predicting that he's set for a major comeback. The editor says that the story will make the paper a laughing stock, but Clark tells him to go, go ahead and let him laugh, and they'll feel even worse when it actually happens. And the next strip is actually pretty cool, because all four panels are just splashes of front-page headlines published over the next few months. And there's actually a couple Easter eggs in them, too. The first shows Clark's article about Trent's win. The next shows a headline from the Milwaukee Journal that proclaims, Trent wins 10th straight victory. The cool part here is, the byline on the article is by Paul Cassidy, which should dispel any doubt that Cassidy was working on the strip at this point. Also interesting is that not only was the Milwaukee Journal one of the earliest papers to run the Superman Daily newspaper strip, but Cassidy was actually from Milwaukee before relocating to Cleveland to work for the Schuster Studio. So that's kind of a nice nod to his hometown there. Uh, The next paper is a headline from the Boston Transcript, which was another paper that ran this strip pretty early on. And it cries, Larry K.O.'s rival, title battle next. And I should point out that this panel and the Milwaukee Journal panel are also overlaid with images of Clark slash Trent delivering stiff haymakers to opponents. Then the final panel, presumably from the Daily Star again, blares the headline, Championship match tomorrow night, million dollar gate expected. I really dig these four panels. They're very evocative of the spinning newspaper technique used in movies and television, and it's a good way to move the story forward quickly without a lot of cumbersome narration. So when we rejoin the actual narrative of the, of the story, it's the day before the big fight, and in Superman's spare apartment, Trent and Superman are getting ready with a bit of sparring. But Trent asks if they can uh, skip the sparring for today because he's feeling a bit down. Superman tells him that's, that that's no way for the next heavyweight champion to talk, but Trent explains that if Superman wins the title, but then allows himself to take the credit, it's really only a hollow win. And I think that's reasonable logic for Trent to have. It shows a little more depth to Trent's character that Siegel is letting him think through things like that. So, realizing that that is what has been bothering Trent all this time, Superman tells him that he thinks that their constant training has gotten him into the proper shape and that he's going to fight tomorrow instead. And this gets Trent all excited. One might argue that Trent only winning the final match is still somewhat of a hollow victory. I mean, if someone carries you up a mountain and you only climb the last 10 feet, can you really say you climbed the mountain? But still, I really like that this story shows Superman giving this guy a hand up rather than just a hand out. Later, back at at the Daily Star, the editor tells Clark that the other newspapers have been giving them guff because of their support of Trent which, to me, really seems kind of foolish on their part at this point, given Trent's remarkable comeback. But Clark tells him that he's still sure Trent is going to win, and in fact, has already written the story. Later that evening, Croy talks with the gangster, and the thug tells him that if the drug drink doesn't work, he's got a backup plan, referring to the gun in his pocket. As the bell rings, Trent leaps from the corner like a tiger uncaged, At the end of the first round, Croy tries to give Trent the drink, but Trent declines. And he thinks to himself, I'll not let you pull that one on me again. The way that's worded is a bit odd. Did Superman not fill him in that Croy was going to double-cross him? (laughs) You'd think that would be a pretty high priority, or else all the work that Superman has done over the last few months would be for naught. I'd like to think that he did tell him, but the wording... The wording on that is just odd. Anyway, the fight continues, and by the end of the sixth round, Trent is wearing down. Croy tries to give him the drink again, but Trent still refuses. Croy is about to force Trent to drink, when suddenly, Croy is grabbed from behind. It's Superman, who also grabs the bottle and force-feeds it to Croy. Croy then runs off in a mad panic, screaming that he's been poisoned, while a couple of guys in the background just kind of look at him like he's nuts. Angered by this turn of events, the gangster pulls his gun, intending to shoot Trent. But as he pulls the trigger, Superman puts his hand in front of the gun barrel, jamming it and causing it to explode in the gangster's face. The panel looks rather comedic, even though it seems like a fairly deadly situation. Anyway, unaware of 
all the commotion. Trent knocks out his opponent and is crowned heavyweight champion of the world. Later, Trent goes back to his apartment to thank Superman, but finds the apartment completely empty except for a single note that reads, You don't need me any longer, Larry, and so, farewell. Sincere congratulations, Superman. Back at the Daily Star, the editor talks to Clark about a story which allowed them to scoop all the other papers, and he asks Clark how he was able to write the story in such detail, and Clark replies, It was just foresight, Chief, merely foresight. And again, in my head, I imagine that being followed by Clark turning and winking to the camera. That would have been a great ending to a solid story. I tell you, Siegel is really knocking it out of the park on this newspaper trip so far. Three stories, uh, 54 strips in, and we've gotten three solid stories. Yes, this one bore a slight resemblance to Action Comics number 4 in premise, but it's a much better execution of the story. There's no Superman knocking out innocent victims. There's no shallow, crazy ex-girlfriends. Superman doesn't avoid the villain of the story by hanging oddly from a doorframe. And best of all, Superman doesn't kidnap or hold anyone hostage in the story in order to, quote-unquote, help them. Maybe Siegel looked back on that story and realized what didn't work in it and thought he'd try again. Or not. Either way, like I said... I thought this was just a really strong effort. I really gave most of my commentary in the synopsis, but I really liked seeing Superman out on patrol at the beginning of the story. I liked seeing Superman help this guy get back on his feet while taking care of what knocked him down in the first place. And I liked seeing Superman and Trent sparring, because those were nice little bonding scenes between the two characters. There's, there's just a lot to love in this story. It's not perfect. Uh, there are some goofy bits with Superman, again, being the master of disguise, the spare apartment that Superman allegedly keeps for emergencies, and the fact that Superman didn't seem to need much boxing training himself. I mean, being really strong doesn't mean you know how to box, and I would have liked to have seen more of either Superman kind of learning the ropes of boxing, or maybe Trent schooling him on boxing technique. I think that would that, that actually would have been a very nice addition to the story. And of course I would have liked to have seen more of Trent's final fight, which was mostly breezed through, but still, overall, I like the story. There's not much of Superman in costume in this story. After he brings Trent back to the apartment, we only get two brief panels of Superman in costume. The first is when he's eavesdropping on Croy, and the angle on that panel is from behind, and Superman's crouched down to begin with, so you really don't see the costume too much. And the second is when he grabs Croy during the fight and forces the drink down his throat. And even that's not really a good shot of the costume. It doesn't affect the story, you know, reading it in one sitting. In fact, it might have hurt the story had Siegel been intent on finding reasons for Superman to keep putting the costume on. But... Looking at it from the perspective of this story being published over the course of a month, there's about three weeks with costume Superman not appearing in the strip, which probably isn't something that made McClure too excited. Uh, that's just speculation on my part, but it'll be interesting to see as we go on if Superman starts spending a greater than average amount of time in costume. This story is also the first of a handful of boxing-related Superman connections. George Reeves was an aspiring boxer in his youth, although he never boxed professionally. And Jack O'Halloran, who played Non in Superman the Movie and Superman 2, was actually a heavyweight boxing contender in the late 60s and early 70s. O'Halloran was apparently pretty good in his early days because he went undefeated in his first 16 bouts. He even fought the legendary George Foreman very early in Foreman's career, although he lost that match when he was knocked out in the fifth round. Story-wise, though, there were a lot of Golden and Silver Age tales that had boxing ties. In fact, one panel in this story, the one where Superman knocks out the other 11 opponents in his first night out as Trent, it's very similar to the cover of Adventure Comics number 134 from 1948. That cover was by George Rousseau's and Ed Debrotka, and it shows Superboy knocking out five boxing opponents at one time. 
And, of course, much more well-known than those was the very famous Superman vs. Muhammad Ali by Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams in 1978. I'm going to float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. George can't hit what his hands can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. He think he will, but I know he won't. They tell me George is good, but I'm twice as nice. And I'm going to stick to his butt like white old rice. That's right. That was the greatest of all time. Of all time. This here's the story of Cassius Clay, who changed his name to Muhammad Ali. He knows how to talk, and he knows how to fight, and all the contenders characters are forced to fight one another with the fate of the earth hanging in the balance. And more recently, there was also Requiem for a Superhero, a season one episode of Lois and Clark, The New Adventures of Superman. In that, Clark and Lois investigate a boxing match where many of the boxers seem unusually strong. It turns out that the boxers are cyborgs built by Lois's doctor father, Sam Lane. Yeah, maybe the less said about that, the better. Anyway, the point is, this is the first Superman-related boxing story, but certainly not the last. Art-wise, I think this is another strong effort from Schuster and Cassidy. Maybe even a little stronger than last story. It's got all the same hallmarks and traits I've talked up in previous stories, so I'm not going to go over them again. Uh, But as I said, I love the use of the the one strip that was just the newspaper headlines. And that's really as much a credit to Siegel's writing as Schuster's art, because he would have had to have instructions for that in the script. But really, this is just really nice art on this one and all of the daily strips so far. I've been really impressed all the way around with the newspaper serial. Um, It's really easy to see why Superman took off all the more quickly when the newspaper strip began, with such a strong start right off the bat in the first three stories. If you're interested in reading this story firsthand, this story was reprinted in the first volume of the dailies from Kitchen Sink Press, and as with the others we've covered, you can read it online as well at DC Comics' site, and I will be sure to put a link to that in the show notes. Also, this story was colored and used in Superman number 2, cover dated Fall 1939. And then that colorized version was later reprinted in Superman Archives Volume 1 and Superman Chronicles Volume 2. So there's lots of places to find this story, both colorized and in the original black and white, if you're interested. At the end of the story's final strip is a small advertising panel heralding the start of a new Superman story in the next strip. And it reads, Beginning Monday, a thrilling new adventure starring Superman, the Man of Tomorrow. And that marks the first time in publication that that nickname has been used to describe Superman. So that's one more small piece of the overall puzzle that's finally falling into place. Rocketed as a baby from the exploding planet Krypton, Kal-El grew to manhood on Earth, whose yellow sun and lighter gravity gave him fantastic superpowers. In the city of Metropolis, he poses as TV newsman Clark Kent, but battles evil all over Earth and beyond as Superman. Superman in the Bronze Age is a weekly podcast following the adventures of Superman from 1970 to the Burn reboot in 1986. Follow along at supermaninthebronzeage.blogspot.com. Superman, a name known throughout the world, to all ages, races, creeds, and colors. But what about those behind the shield? Men and women 
who over 75 years have given us a legend. These are their stories. After the two-part spotlight on Jerry Siegel in episodes 10 and 12, it only seemed right to follow that up with a look at the other man responsible for Superman's creation. So, I wanted to spotlight Superman's co-creator, artist Joe Schuster. Joseph Schuster was born July 10, 1914, in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. He was the first child of Julius and Ida Schuster, Jewish immigrants from the Netherlands and the Ukraine, respectively. Julius was a tailor, and he owned his own tailor shop in the Garment District of Toronto. However, when that failed... Julius heard that a big manufacturing company had recently opened in Cleveland making men's suits. So, around the time Joe turned 10, he, along with his mother, father, and younger siblings Frank and Jean, moved to Cleveland, Ohio. Before the move, Schuster had worked as a newspaper boy for the Toronto Daily Star. He also had a hobby of drawing, which is a skill that he began developing as young as age 4, according to family stories. In Cleveland, Schuster continued developing his artistic skill. He attended Alexander Hamilton Junior High, where he drew a comic strip entitled Jerry the Journalist for the school's newspaper, The Federalist. The strip was named after the paper's editor, Jerry Fine, who, by coincidence, was a cousin of Jerry Siegel, someone who would soon be a major part of Schuster's life. While Schuster loved drawing, his parents weren't always necessarily very supportive of him becoming an artist. In at least one interview, Schuster stated that, early, his mother wanted him to become a doctor. However, once they saw he was serious about becoming an artist, they supported him in his pursuits. Since he had no art table or proper art supplies, Schuster would use his mother's breadboard as a drawing surface. He would draw on whatever paper was available, even using brown wrapping paper or the back of discarded wallpaper. In fact, in a 1980s interview, Schuster even said when they submitted their first two strips to Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson, one had been done on brown paper and the other on wallpaper. And it was only after they were sold that Schuster went out and bought good drawing paper. Despite his love for art, Schuster had very little formal art training. While he did take some basic illustration and anatomy lessons in school, Schuster credited most of his ability to natural talent. He was also inspired by several artists of the time. As a young boy, his favorite comic strip was Little Nemo by Winsor McKay. As he got older, he drew inspiration from the works of artists like Roy Crane, Milton Kniff, Alexander Raymond, Hal Foster, and Frank R. Paul. Schuster was also an avid reader, reading as often as he could. He especially enjoyed the works of H.G. Wells, Edgar Rice Burroughs, Jules Verne, and other science fiction writers of the day. It was this love of science fiction that would play a key part in forming the friendship between himself and Siegel, who he met in 1931 while they were both students at Glenville High School in Cleveland. This mutual love of sci-fi, as well as comic strips and pulp magazines, was the basis of what would become a lifelong friendship between the two. Siegel once described meeting and befriending Joe Schuster by saying, When Joe and I first met, it was like the right chemicals coming together. In high school, while he never played sports, Schuster enjoyed bodybuilding and was even a member of the school's tumbling club. He also designed scenery for school plays and was president of the school's art club. But it was still drawing that was Schuster's first love, and he continued to hone his art skills by contributing cartoons for the high school's paper, the Glenville Torch. Siegel was a fan of Schuster's art, so the two collaborated for the first time on a comic strip for the paper, a Tarzan spoof titled Goober the Mighty. In 1932, Schuster and Siegel collaborated on a fanzine they titled Science Fiction, The Advanced Guard of a Future Civilization. Schuster served as art editor for the publication, while Siegel was the editor. The pair would produce five issues, which would include material from future celebrity writers such as Ray Bradbury, Forrest J. Ackerman, and others. However, the most notable inclusion during the fanzine's run came in its third issue, which sported a January 1933 cover date. 
It was a story written by Siegel and illustrated by Schuster, both working under the joint pen name of Herbert S. Fine. The story was titled Reign of the Superman and told the story of Bill Dunn, a vagrant given telepathic powers from an experimental potion used on him by a scientist by the name of Professor Smalley. Becoming drunk with the power from his new abilities, Dunn turns villainous and seeks to rule the world. A few short months later, the Superman would take new life when Schuster and Siegel would reinvent the character in a new strip. No longer a villain, this Superman was a two-fisted hero, similar to the character of Slam Bradley the pair would create for Detective Comics a half-decade later. Schuster and Siegel submitted the idea to Consolidated Book Publishing in Chicago, who had earlier published a 48-page black-and-white Detective Dan tabloid comic. They received an encouraging reply, but Consolidated soon suspended their comic publishing endeavors, so the strip was never published. Upon the rejection, Schuster destroyed all of the artwork from the strip by tossing it into a fire. Only the cover image, which was rescued from destruction by Siegel, remained. What happened next is a story that has been told countless times and has become the stuff of legend. Early one morning in the summer of 1934, Siegel arrived at Schuster's home, bubbling over with ideas for a new Superman. He would be a hero from a distant world, with fantastic strength and abilities that he would use to help mankind, but would stay hidden behind a timid, bespectacled disguise. The story goes on to say that Schuster sat down immediately and began making sketches, inspired by classic heroes, strongmen of old, and silent film adventure heroes of the 20s, Schuster and Siegel designed the famous costume, a form-fitting suit, boots, and a cape, but it was missing something. Finally, added to the costume was the famous S on the chest of their new creation, an S for Siegel, an S for Schuster, and most importantly, an S for Superman. In establishing the visual look for the strip, Schuster drew from many sources, including his surroundings in Cleveland, his memories of Toronto, and the glamorous celebrities of Hollywood. Clark Kent's employer, the Daily Star, gained its name after the Toronto paper for which Schuster worked as a boy selling issues on street corners. Even the landscape and city horizon that Superman ran through on his many adventures was often drawn from memories Schuster retained from his decade of living in Toronto. Schuster and Siegel drew from their neighborhood surroundings in Cleveland, too, particularly Cleveland's Terminal Tower. Still a relatively new addition to Cleveland's skyline in the early 30s, the 708-foot, 52-story building was then one of the largest in the world. In a 1988 letter to then-Mayor George Voinovich, Siegel reminisced about trips with Schuster downtown and imagining their costumed creation leaping through the sky and landing on top of the tower while on some important mission. Girl reporter Lois Lane's fiery personality owes much to Hollywood, but her visual appearance was taken from a much closer source. Schuster spotted an ad in the Cleveland Plain Dealer that read, Artist Model, No Experience. The ad had been placed by a young woman by the name of Yolande Kovacs. Kovacs modeled for Schuster and became friends with both he and Siegel. Kovacs would eventually move from Cleveland and do some more serious modeling under the name Joanne Carter. While away, she kept in touch with Schuster by mail and eventually would more fully return to his life when she married Siegel in 1948. As for the strip's main star, Douglas Fairbanks Sr., known by Schuster for his swashbuckling roles in films like The Black Pirate and Robin Hood, was the main physical model for Superman. A few sources have been cited for the visual look of his alter ego Clark Kent. Schuster often cited actor Harold Lloyd as being one of the primary visual inspirations, as well as Schuster himself and Siegel. Walter Dennis, a journalist and science fiction fan who apparently sent Siegel a photo of himself early in the 30s, has also been speculated as a source. As ideas formed, Schuster and Siegel worked and created four weeks worth of daily newspaper strips featuring their new creation. They then set out to sell the strip. Unfortunately, that, at first, seemed like a feat almost as formidable as the Man of Steel himself. In the four years that followed, Schuster and Siegel submitted their strip to syndicates and publishers across the country, only to receive a near-constant stream of rejections. McClure Syndicate, Bell Syndicate, and Super Magazines Inc. rejected the strip. Esquire Features declined the strip, admonishing Schuster to pay a little attention to actual drawing, saying his seemed crude and hurried. Tip Top Comics expressed interest, but were soon bought out by United Features, who likewise rejected the strip. 
A small newspaper liked the idea, but wanted the strip done as serial prose. Believing Schuster's visual were a key part of the strip, Schuster and Siegel turned down this proposal outright. In 1935, Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson of National Allied Publications expressed interest in the strip for the first issue of his new book, New Fun. But Schuster and Siegel turned this down as well, lacking faith in Wheeler Nicholson's financial situation. They did, however, begin working for Wheeler Nicholson, creating other strips. The first of these were Dr. Occult and Henri Duval, Soldier of France, both of which debuted in New Fun No. 6, cover dated October 1935. Other features from Schuster and Siegel in the following years included Federal Men and Radio Squad, both in 1936, and Bart Regan Spy and Slam Bradley, which both debuted in Detective Comics No. 1 in 1937. But even though they had success with the other features, Schuster and Siegel didn't give up on Superman. And finally, in 1937, a break came through. With Detective Comics added to its publishing stable, Wheeler Nicholson took on Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz as partners, and they would eventually take over the company entirely. With their new company, Donenfeld and Leibowitz sought to add yet another book to their lineup, which meant they needed more features to fill it. As the much-repeated story goes, M.C. Gaines of McClure Syndicate, who was printing their books at the time, became aware of their situation, and when Sheldon Mayer discovered Superman on McClure's slush pile, Gaines, still having no interest in the strip himself, sent it on to Donenfeld and Leibowitz. Donenfeld and Leibowitz took an immediate liking to the strip and decided to use it as the lead feature in the new book. Schuster and Siegel signed a contract selling the first story, as well as all rights to the character, which was common practice at the time, to DC for $130. They then reworked the existing daily strips into the format required to fit the comic book page, and with that, Superman finally leapt into the pages of both action comics and of history. And that's where we'll leave off for now. I will finish up the spotlight on Joe Schuster in the next episode. The Superman Fan Podcast is turning over a new leaf for 2011. With the growth of Superman podcasts in 2010 covering the Golden Age of Superman, the Bronze Age Superman, the post-crisis Superman, as well as current Superman stories, I noticed that there was not a podcast which covered the Silver Age of Superman stories. And since I began reading comic books in the early to mid-1960s, right in the middle of the Silver Age, I decided it would be a perfect opportunity for me to cover the Silver Age of Superman stories. One week I will cover the Superman family of titles, Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, World's Finest Comics, and eventually Superman's girlfriend Lois Lane. The next week I will cover the Man of Steel's titles of Superman and Action Comics, as well as the Supergirl stories. And I will alternate episodes in this fashion through 1970 when Mark Weisinger retired. The home website is at supermanfanpodcast.mypodcast.com and expanded show notes are at supermanfanpodcast.blogspot.com Your emails are welcome at supermanfanpodcast at gmail.com and I look forward to reading them. The Superman Fan Podcast is a member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at www.fortressofbailey2.com slash Superman Podcast Network where you can find all of the podcasts covering every era of the Man of Steel. Episodes are also available on iTunes. So join me each week as we fly through the time barrier and journey through the Silver Age adventures of Superman. Okay, let's get this show on the road, gang. I'm Batman. This looks like a job for Superman. 
monthly Mondays. Available the third Monday of every month at twotruefreaks.libson.com. Well, everyone, I think that about wraps up another episode. Next time out, we'll be looking at the fourth storyline from the newspaper serial, which actually sort of takes off from a plot point in the story we just covered. That story has more Lois Lane in it as well, and we haven't really gotten too much of the old crazy Lois lately, so that should be entertaining if nothing else. I'll also be concluding my spotlight on Joe Schuster, so be sure to come back for that. In the meantime, if you have any thoughts or comments, questions, or other feedback on the show, please feel free to email me at thrillingadventures at greatcrypton.com. You can also visit the show's website at www.greatcrypton.com and you can see show notes from this and other episodes and those include links and images and additional commentary I also post other comics and uh, Superman related bits there from time to time so be sure to stop by if you'd like to subscribe to the show you may do so via the RSS feed or iTunes and links to both of those are at the site If you subscribe via iTunes, I welcome any and all iTunes reviews. It helps people to find the show and know that it's worth listening to. Also at the site, you'll find the link to the show's Facebook page. I like to connect with listeners via the Facebook page, so if you're on Facebook, just search for Thrilling Adventures of Superman, or like I said, click the link at the website. The show is also a proud member of the Superman Podcast Network which you can find at supermanpodcastnetwork.com. And that is uh, second home to many great Superman-related podcasts and vidcasts that I encourage you to check out. I also invite you to check out my other show that I do with my friend Michael Kaiser, and that's called Legends of the Batman. In that, we are covering everything Batman from the beginning. Each episode, we take a month worth of Batman, starting with his first appearance in 1939, and we read it, review it, snark at it. It's just a good old time. So head on over to BatmanLegends.com and check that out. As always, Superman was created by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster and is copyright DC Comics. Thanks again for listening to the Thrilling Adventures of Superman, everyone. I will talk to you later. Goodbye. Except for my kid being born. This is the greatest night in the history of my life. I just want to say one thing to my wife who's home. Yo, Adrian! I did it!